the caffeine still didn't kick in. My voice is just different in the mornings, yeah. I think this is the first time I'm recording a podcast first thing after I just woke up. Do you love it? Do you love it? Well, it's gonna disappear, so <laughs> deal with it while you can. Among other things, today I was super disappointed. <laughs> well, not today. The research on the second pair of twins for this podcast this month uh, kind of brought a lot of disappointment. Not in a sense that I was disappointed by the research. In terms of research, this is one of those cases that has like a ton of listicles. At some point I had like 10 tabs open, all of them were lists, and I was like, I like a challenge, I like a challenge, I don't like me a list kind of challenge, give me some actual timelines, give me some actual articles. It brought disappointment in the sense that swinging sixes doesn't mean what I thought in my pervert brain, you know, full-on Scorpio season is upon us, and I was like, wow, swinging sixties, that can mean only one thing. Apparently not. Apparently it can mean multiple other things, and mostly not the one that I thought it meant, so... So today we're talking about organized crime. You, you guys know when I covered Benjamin Siegel how much you loved that. <laughs> well, I will not make this one sound like a movie, right? Like I did that time, because there are already movies on the crazed twins. I watched one of them for research purposes or whatever. I didn't really give me much research. I was like, just paint it for me. Somebody just paint this for me so I can, you know, play the imagine card. So I watched Tom Hardy's Legend, the 2015 movie. Have a couple of things to say on that, but yeah, um, why do you lot find Tom Hardy so hot? Like, it's just such a fuckboy look. So, let me portray the life in the 60s for you in London before we dive into this motherfucker. Cool, cool. So, Swinging 60s is actually why Carnaby Street is this popular, because it was kind of like the main street back then. You could see people channeling miniskirt that was only just introduced by Mary Quint. So it's very colorful in a sense of lifestyle. And then obviously you have a backdrop of music that's provided by the Beatles, the Stones, Hermit's Hermits, the Kings. The dominance of the BBC is challenged by different independent stations coming out now and by that pirate radio as well. The American teams are finally becoming familiar with the names of the London streets like King's Road, Kensington and of course Abbey Road. And these different parts of culture have also sort of translated in the US. So finally, people across the pond are getting familiar with Union Jack, with the Beatles, with James Bond. And in the middle of the swing sixes, it's like all the colorful world. And then obviously, there is a seedy underworld going on in different pubs and places where these two characters are living their best life and everybody fears them. And they are running this with their associates, better known as The Firm. And well, their pubs are a place where exactly this merging swinging era is happening because celebrities like Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra are all gathering at the places that this duo of twins owns. So obviously on the surface this looks like freaking power and ghosts running the business, but then you know that underneath... Everybody leads double lives. Mm -hmm. So today we are talking about a couple of twins that have rejoiced forces. So not like the ones that we spoke about last week. No, these two were like, listen, we are stronger together. But then they also had their individualities. Like 
Usually people watch Legend or just know about Cray Twins and they're like, oh yeah, this is great because, you know, all this organized crime. It looks sick because of that. Whereas I was looking at that and I was like, hey, these twins actually like acted like two separate people a lot of times and that's what I respect about them. So let's dive into the motherfuck. Ronnie and Reggie Cray were infamous for their criminal activities in the 1960s. The trail of witnesses they left behind will eventually lead to their downfall, and one detective's mission to stay uncorrupted by all means necessary will have eventually paid off. What were their motives? So again, choose your player wisely, as you have heard from that intro, two of them are going down. So you can be one of the twins for this episode, or you can be detective that catches them. And well, if you are a detective, you are pretty frustrated right now, because you know that you almost had them. If you have watched the movie, you also know what I'm talking about. So this is that moment where they actually had a witness, witness a shooting. And they brought them in for a lineup, and Ronnie Crave was standing right there in front of them. Detective thought it was a slam dunk, it was a clear cut case. They're gonna recognize him from the lineup, but no, they just said, no, no, nobody is present. The person that shot them, I saw them clearly. They are not here. Because again, the Cray twins were paying for everybody's silence, also threatening people into it as well. So as a detective, we're like, okay, now there were plenty of witnesses that have seen a stabbing in the club. And this time, we think we have Reggie. And as soon as we have one, if we get one, the, the witnesses from the previous murder are going to start coming up again. And we're going to have both of them. Plus also, you know, at least we're going to have them as an accomplice, right? Because they were twins. They own a pub. They own this pub in town. They knew what was going on in each other's lives. So we have one, we have the other. When it comes to the legend, this part that they portrayed, it was as if the detective was just like, oh, hey, by the way, we are going after Cray twins. If anybody has a problem, speak to me. And that's not really how it went down, because most of the officers were already bribed by the craze. Most of them were already corrupt, and they were kind of in their hands. So had he done that, he probably would have never caught these bitches. <laughs> he probably would have never caught them. So Nipper Reed, the detective here, kind of kept it actually on the hush-hush. was just sort of pulling people in, like it took insane amount of time to realize who he can actually trust and form the unit of these uncorruptible detectives that he can trust and that can go after craze with him. And Reed was also no amateur detective. Like, he was first assigned to St. John's Wood in London. He was promoted detective sergeant in 1958. He was doing pretty well for himself. At the age of 39, he was promoted to detective inspector. So this was in 1964, which was prime time when the craze were operating. And of course, with the promotion, well, came the biggest job in town. And that was catching Ronnie and Reggie. And this is exactly, so July 1964 was when he was approached by the area chief superintendent with a special job. And this guy was like, listen, I know it'll take time, but you need to prep a unit. You need to gather this little team together. 
and have a go at the craze. And the best part of this and why Jared picked Reed was the fact that Nipper Reed didn't know the craze, didn't actually know anything about them. So he was like, yeah, but I'm completely unbiased. Like they will most definitely not have me in their pocket. And from the sounds of it, I mean, they wouldn't really have any leverage. Like, I wasn't involved with them. So also, it's good because it's fresh face. It's somebody who needs to technically go after them, go into their pub, go into their property, and doesn't necessarily... It, it helps that they don't know how he looks like, that they can't smell a cup, technically. And just as I mentioned, he managed to gather a team of actually 10 people, so 10 uncorrupted officers, by doing exactly that working with them from different times, you know, from St. John's Wood to Chelsea, he worked in Paddington at certain times. So in 60s, he kind of gathered all of these officers that didn't necessarily have any connection to Craze as well, but that had worked with him and he could actually entrust with this mission. And this is one of my favorite parts, because they do what they called cray spotting. So they would go to Whitechapel Road and to Grey Marie's pub, where, according to Reed's sources, you know, he now had 10 detectives to work for him. So he would kind of deploy them and all of them would, like, technically spy or just pretend that, you know, they're there for a pint and then listen. Now they had a tale to follow, because, according to Reed's sources, Ronnie Cray was about to meet a journalist called Michael Barrett. So Reed is there trying to look, you know, like the person working 9 to 5, you know, suit and tie in the 60s, all of that shit, and just sitting across Ronnie in the pub. He just asked for a pie, just a sandwich, just give me the evening's news, and then he gave me the evening news, and he opened it to the racing page, which again is a great piece of information that we know. And because it was a 6 p.m. on a working day, he was the only person in the pub. This was smart because on this occasion and other occasions, whoever these CD associates, whatever you want to call them, that Ronnie and Reggie were meeting, they would actually go in, survey the pub, go through the toilets, check that nobody's, you know, spying, that nobody's looking out of the place, and then they would meet with Ronnie and Reggie. So nobody ever suspected Reed or the other detectives while they were doing this, while they were surveying them. And just to give you a sense, so at that point, it was 64, it was 10 detectives, and Cray Gang already had 15 members, so it wasn't just that they were going after Honor and Reggie. Yes, those were like, you know, the, the head of the snake, but then the rest also had to go down with them as well, because they were accomplices, they witnessed everything. And it took four years, so all the way up until 68, Orny Parid and the police to get these two twins and the rest of the gang. But before we go further into how they were caught, let's go into the crimes of Roger and Rennie. <laughs> Roger and Rennie... <laughs> Yeah, you baptize them differently by it. Yep, Reggie and Ronnie. This research, as as you can tell, I, I love particularly about any British cases that I cover. Because any expressions I come by, I'm like, what? Does anybody say that? Does anybody? Like a person at work calls me a good egg. And at first I was like, this is like okay an expression. There's so many expressions in the UK with British with food, with breakfast food. And I never know because you know for me I'm like, oh it's breakfast food. All of them must be good. No. Apparently if you say somebody's full of beans, that ain't great. But if you call somebody a good egg, that's great. If they're a bad egg, obviously they're a bad egg. But yeah. So I call her the best egg. <laughs> that's not an expression. I changed. I changed the norms. Okay? Brits. <laughs> 
never change norms. I will never change the accent. Cool. So this article said they put their steel fist in a velvet glove by running glamorous West End nightclubs. So they're talking about like, hey, where we're crazy at that moment. I was like, what? Is that like a boxing term? <laughs> Do you use putting a fist, steel fist in a velvet glove? Any longer, Brits? Did, did you hear it ever? <laughs> because yes, tell me if that's a boxing term. I'm not gonna bother and Google it. I love expressions. I love my expressions. By all means necessary, but I'm not gonna do it. So their criminal career sort of started once they were dishonorably discharged from the royal fusiliers. Fusiliers, yeah, from the you know fusil stuff. Yeah, <laughs> short shots in the army, people which also ended their boxing careers. So instead, they bought this rundown snooker club in Mile End and they started protection rackets. Basically, what it meant is um, they were technically a bodyguard hire service. Yeah, let's translate it to today's terms. So if anybody from Frank Sinatra, for example, anybody famous in London, to have, because they are VIP, they had to have somebody going with them all the time. They had to have bodyguards, protection service, whatever you want to call it. Ronnie and Reggie would cover it. They were like, yeah, this is it. But also on the side, and they started turning to crime. These protection rackets would also work to protect from violence, looting, raiding, piracy, and other threats posed. And well, protection rackets kind of usually appear either where police can't protect you or kind of like black markets where you don't want the police to protect you. And that's where Ronnie and Reggie were leading to. But by the end of 50s, the craze were working for Jay Murray. It's kind of also shady doing business up north in Liverpool. So they were like spreading, not just sticking to London. And they were involved in hijacking, in armed robbery and arson, for which they acquired other clubs and properties. So it's kind of low like, hey, let's expand. It's the 60s. We're swinging. <laughs> then why I say that the twins kind of could still operate without one another, even though, you know, supposedly they had this strong bond. But it's had, I don't know, with, with these two, it's like a particular strong bond. It's a strong bond when it comes to the business. Otherwise, I think if they had never worked together, realized that, hey, this is the life for them, I don't think that they would have, you know, just met for, I don't know, Thanksgiving dinners and weird shit like that. UK doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving. Move the fuck on. So in 1960, Ronnie was in prison for 18 months for running a protection racket. And because he was just also threatening. If you watch the movie, Ronnie is the more butch one, the one that has more skin. The less hot one, basically. The less hot of the hardies. <laughs> and he was also the one that has the wildest statements. I mean, I laughed throughout the first half of the movie because it was fucking hilarious. The accents were just these Rockney Essex accents. It was hilarious to watch. And Ronnie would just say the wildest things. He was the one with a bit of mental illness, yeah. Whereas Reggie is just... Um, the, the hot one, very impulsive, the one that boxes everybody that spites him, yep. Both of them would threaten people, so this is no surprise. So Ronnie was to serve 18 months. And while he was in prison, Peter Rachman, who was the head of the landlord operation, sold Reggie this nightclub called Esmeralda's Barn, which is where everything from then on is going to happen. And right now, this is the place where Berkeley Hotel is. And well, to give you a bit of a schmack, which is, uh, schmack is taste in German. This is from Ronnie Cray's autobiography, My Story. Which, I mean, 
Okay, if you were to have autobiography, yeah, would you name it your story? I, mean, I feel like you would need to be a really big deal or think you're a really big deal to name your autobiography my story. Because otherwise they're like, the fuck, give me something catchy, give me the by all means necessary. Come on, what the fuck are you doing? So he said, they were the best years of our lives. They called them the swinging 60s. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones were, were rulers of pop music. Carnaby Street ruled the fashion world. And me and my brother ruled London. We were fucking untouchable. Yeah, sick piece of writing. <laughs> Love it. Love it, Ronnie. Kick it. And obviously, in order to picture this, you kind of need to picture that it was this composite, it was this smash of celebrities and also people working with them. So yes, you would fear them, but you would also respect them because you didn't want to mess with the craze. And you knew that they had celebrity friends, that this is, well, how they got to fame, that everybody going to the pub to their parties were famous people, but they also operated with people like bankers, with people from the fashion world. And by having these protection records, well, it's better to be on good terms with the craze rather than being on the bad terms. Because you can benefit from it, but also you don't want to be on the other side of the craze. And the best way to prove this was a potential scandal that they have hushed down. Because it was speculated that Ronnie had a sexual relationship with Lord Boothby, who was this conservative politician. Obviously, male-to-male contact, which was not allowed. Male-to-male contact, Jesus Christ. Still, well, but not a lot. I mean, it was a criminal offense in the UK in 1960s. So Sunday Mirror, because this was just about to happen before the election, Sunday Mirror actually had to fire their editor and they had to back down, print an apology, because obviously this was already in the papers, print an apology and pay before 40k in out-of-court settlements. So he didn't even go to court. That's kind of how much power that they had to pay a couple of people to just hush everything down and make it disappear. And in 66, Ronnie famously entered a blind beggar pub in the Whitechapel and has shot George Cornell, who was a member of the rival gang, the Richardson gang, who operated sort of in South London. So Crazer mostly north and east, and then Richardson was in the south. And basically, Ronnie just heard, he was sort of like in a tavern nearby, and he just heard, hey, there's a gang member. And he just kind of snapped out of it, went up, went to the pub, and Cornell only managed to mutter, like, well, look who is there, and then saw the gun, and the next thing he knew, he was shot. And right after he shot him, Ironberry, his assistant, actually fired five shots in the air, which were the sign for people to stay silent. Basically, like, you haven't seen anything. And later when they asked him, like, hey, Ronnie, like, why did you just, like, step out and shoot him? Like, you didn't just go around shooting everybody from this rival gang. Like, what the hell? He was like, yeah, he called me a fat poof, which was apparently a derogatory term. It just sounds so cute. But apparently it was a derogatory term for gay men in 1960s. Also, he called him that at a Christmas party in 1965. And he was shot... Let me see. And he was shot in March 1966. So that tells me for at least three months, Ronnie was just seeding. That's one thing when, you know, obviously thinking about motives. Ronnie was said to have suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. But then again, as we say, not all people suffering from this mental illness go to do the same things. And the fact that he was kind of just seeding and sitting on it for three months and then snapped one day, I think kind of speaks to who... The, the brothers were, and how they always had to get their way. 
they were always looking for staying as respectable as possible, I guess. So while Ronnie is having this turmoil, Reggie on the other side is kind of at this point in the middle of his marriage with, with Frances, who if you watch the movie is basically the person that is the movie is represented from her point of view. In the movie, I feel that's the best thing that they could have done because it kind of portrays it really well. The rise and fall, technically, like how everything was just perfect, everything's fine, but then she kind of neglected all the red flags where he would just, you know, leave her behind, leave her at home while he was out there focusing on on the business. And her ignorance to him basically just snapping at everybody in this pub, just like sort of losing it, boxing with them, fighting with them, even with his own brother. And then how that slowly but surely escalated where he just didn't respect her to the point that it drove her to suicide. So in 1967, Francis overdosed on the pills. And even later, he would say that this part was accidental, but like her brother and the family don't believe so. One thing that I haven't seen, it might be in autobiographies, I haven't read them, but one thing that I'm not sure did the movie portray this on true events, is that final straw, which you could have considered for Francis, which was kind of physical violence or sexual assault. I don't know where they went with that scene, but that's the one thing where I haven't read anywhere, but they must have, because I don't think like that would have just been in the movie for, for no reason. Jack the Hat McVitie was the minor member of the Cray Gang and he failed to fulfill his contract that he was paid for. He was paid 1000 and he was hired to kill their financial advisor, Leslie Payne. But McVitie not just didn't kill the guy, but he was also using that money to just party, to buy booze and to just brag about it as well. Which is one thing, if we have learned from these things, yes, maybe steal people's money, but once you, you know, take a piss and brag about it, your chances of getting killed are much higher. So on this night, he was lured to the basement flat on the pretense of a party. And as soon as he walked in, he saw Ronnie sitting in the front room. And actually, Ronnie was the one that basically attacked McVitie first, not Reggie. So Ronnie cut him below the eyes with the broken glass. And then we go to that scene where Reggie was handed a handgun, but it basically failed to discharge. And then he was handed a carving knife and he just starting stabbing McVitie and nobody could like pull him off. And he sna- stabbed him multiple places and then just left him for dead and left the place. And this is one murder where, well, the firm or the rest of the gang members didn't necessarily think he deserved to die and most certainly not like that. Like, you know, you can just fire a guy and ask him to pay you back 1,000 pounds. Then these Lambriano twins, who also were part of the firm, helped clear up the evidence of the crime. And they helped also assist disposal of the body. You know, everything here is a big no-no. It's like a guidebook to what not to do. But what they freaking do, they realized he is too big to fit the boot of the car. So they just instead put him as if he was just sitting normally like a live person in the back seat of the car because that seemed logical. And then they were kind of driving and I don't know what the hell their plan was, but they also were out of petrol by this St. Mary's church in Rotherhide. So they just decided to dump the corpse there because there was bigger chances that the gang that operated in that area would then get blamed for that crime as if like it was one of theirs. 
And then they phoned Charlie Cray, who was the twins' brother. And they were like, hey, it's, it's been dealt with, you know, we just left it here. And Charlie, like, phoned Reggie and Ronnie. It was like, yeah, I think, like, they made a big doo-doo. This was kind of a mess. So the brothers were losing it. Called another guy, called Foreman, which was the pub owner, and said, well, we need to break into this car and dispose of this body. So by now, this is already plenty of people involved, plus all of the witnesses that have seen it in a pub. So they found a car, broke into it, and drove the body to New Haven, where they disposed of it and dumped it into the English Channel, because they were like, hey, this is where the bodies might never be found. And again, as I mentioned, this was way too many witnesses. It was way too brutal. People didn't think it was fair. People disagreed with the disposal of the body and how they dealt with that. Blaming the other gang, then how they disposed of it later. And they were like, well, this might as well happen to us. I feel in people's minds it kind of appeared that, um, you know, if somebody was to ask me, maybe, yeah, I would say that I witnessed it. Because otherwise, I might be next. They are becoming super unpredictable. And this next part is just the funniest thing. It also, only I only read it in one source, which I am pretty sure that somebody just invented this. Just for poetic justice, whatever you want to call it. They were like, no, listen, <laughs> this makes sense in my head. So, of course, this whole episode from now on is going to be about this. And that is that the brothers kind of became fearful, but it's more that you would fear the name. And then that name would increase the fear of, them so you know if you think about the craze you just think about the name and the name in itself is increasing the fear of who they are rather than if you were to let's say call them you know who or the ones that must not be named do you know where this is going yeah this person said mm -hmm, they said that reportedly part of jk's rolling inspiration for referring to voldemort as you know who in the harry potter books yes was taken from the refusal of some to mention the Cray twins' names. I didn't hear J.K. Rowling say anything about it, but hey, this is it. They were the you-know-whos. And this, again, to prove that they were correct, they put an actual event. But yes, I again still think that the you-know-whos thing is invented here. But they said such fear reportedly caused famed artist Lucian Freud to cancel a gallery showing because he believed the craze would show up to collect the 500k, the 500,000 he owed them in gambling debts. It's as true as, as you want to believe in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Voldemort was based on the craze, guys. It's it's a fact. It's factual. And now we return to our detective, or if you chose that character, hey, this is who you are. And if you chose the craze as well, you, you failed. You make better choices in your freaking life because you're about to go down. So now Nipper Reed is on the sly interviewing people because he realized quickly that something has happened. They started interviewing people who were at the pub on that day and offering them a deal. So they were like, hey, listen, you get a deal if you testify against the others. Because again, the bigger picture was not to just arrest the craze, but for everybody else to go down with them as well. And Reggie and Ronnie, and again, I think this speaks to their character so much. When they were in prison now, still waiting for the sentence, they came up to the plan for another firm member, Scotch Jack Dixon, to confess to the murder, to confess to the murder of Cornell, and for another one, Ronnie Hart, to take the McVitie's murder. And they got this guy, Albert Dan Donahue, to act as a witness. He's like, no, you actually witnessed this murder. And Donahue didn't want to do it and that angered the twins so basically told his mom to tell the police that he is ready to talk 
Ed Vidonohi, of course, like the whole domino trail just fell upon and everybody was snitching on these twins. So, yeah, I guess the, the, the really moral of this story is even if you're a gangster, you need to like try to be, you know, the, the amicable one. You need to be a friendly one. I mean, most, in most cases, from what we saw in the movies, those ones die first, but, you know, <laughs> then at least people won't snitch on you, you see? If Takashi 6 9 was, you know, a really friendly person, had something nice to say about every single people in their life, <laughs> Takashi would snitch, <laughs> he, he wouldn't be where he is right now. <laughs> So obviously now Nipparit had them in the bag and Ronnie was charged with Cornell's murder while Reggie is charged with the killing of Jack the Hat McVitie. They were both convicted in 1969 and jailed for life. Again, something that speaks to their characters so beautifully is that during this trial they tried to basically say that they were innocent and discard all of the witness testimonies pointing at other people's criminal past. They're like, okay, cool. So you're a completely innocent person, right? But you know about every single other witness's criminal past. Sounds like exactly something a completely innocent person would know about. Yes, Ronnie and Reg. Reg. And this judge, again, I love British cases. I just love covering them. I always cry at it. And I cover them just from laughter because this uh, guy, Justice Melford Stevenson, said, in my view, society has earned a rest from your activities. Which I mean, when in the US or anywhere else in the world would you hear somebody be like, yeah, listen, we have earned a rest from you. <laughs> it's like, yo, listen, we, we need to chill a bit. I mean, you will never have the dramatic Caso Cerrado baton clank, you know, you will never have the, 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 the South American dramatization of, um, or just Judge Judy even. Mm-hmm. In the UK, they earn the rest. They earn the rest from you, and that's that's the most dramatic fucking saying that there will be. It will always be like some Shakespearean fucking saying. You will be doomed to lie in the lore of your deeds, and you're like, sure. Can you like translate that now? <laughs> it's like how an immigrant get me out of there. They were not immigrants. That would be something I would say. Cool. Moving on. So the judge recommended at least 30 years and above, and they got life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 30 years. And this was at the time the longest sentence to have ever been passed at Old Bailey. And their bro Charlie actually got 10 years as well for his part in his in these murders. But now when they went to prison, they actually diagnosed Ronnie with schizophrenia and he has been sent to Broadmoor Hospital, which if you remember, hosted Silent Twins as well, hosted Yorkshire Reaper, I haven't covered that guy yet. Pretty much one of those places where you don't really come out of. It's insanely just spooky and creepy as a hospital as such, and it's for the worst of the worst in any sense, and it has been for centuries. And when they transferred Ronnie, these hospital guards in Broadmoor actually found the business card and it said Crayley Enterprises. And they were like, what the hell is this? So people kind of speculated, and I mean, this has kind of been confirmed, that they have been running out of prison and the mental health institution. They have been running their bodyguard business from prison. Frank Sinatra actually hired 18 Crayley bodyguards for a visit to Wimbledon in 1985. But apparently this was a legal one, so they couldn't really do much because this was technically like officially reported as a company and somebody else was running it and people were running it on the outside. 
And they didn't really have like much privileges in prison, except that they were both let out to attend their mom's funeral because they were, of course, mommy's boys. As with everybody, the connection with their mom when it comes to criminals is super strong. It was said that Reggie in the prison became a born-again Christian. <laughs> and both of them had quite nasty, I would say, violent deaths. Strangely. I mean, Ronnie actually had a heart attack. So he suffered heart attack at Broadmoor. And then his brother Reggie was let out to attend his funeral again. If, if anything should deter you from doing crime, it is these kind of things where you have to think like you're in prison, you have family behind. It's not like you have nothing to lose and now you're risking going to prison before like committing an act. It's kind of like you have a stuff to lose. You then need to think, like, am I going to even be let out to attend the funeral of my own brother, my own mother, or, like, any other members of the family? It's just, you know, it's one thing glamorizing these people, and then the other thing is, like, you know, what their imprisonment and the life actually looks like, and just how shitty and sad and miserable it ends up being. Well, that was super positive. So, Reggie died of bladder cancer, uh, which I don't even know if today is curable. It's just one thing that you don't really think about, bladder cancer, like, can it be, can your bladder be removed? Okay, stop it. And he died outside because he was compassionately released from prison due to his bladder cancer. And the movie was called Legend, which they didn't really explain the movie because at his funeral, his coffin was decorated with flowers that spelled out the word legend. And there was thousands of people just applauding at his funeral. Because, I mean, at this point, why not? This reminds me, the other day I was PMSing like a next level bitch and I was just doing my morning walk, you know, doing the Greg's round. <laughs> And just walking around, and I remembered La Casa de Papel, the scene, La Puta Ama, the coffin one, without spoiling anything. But if you haven't watched it by now, like, what the hell are you doing? And I remember how much I cried during that scene, and how I will probably never meet Alba Flores, the legend, the one and only legend. And I was just crying on the streets, bawling my eyes out, just walking, <laughs> crying over La Puta Ama. I was like, what would people write on my coffin? I think about funerals and death a lot. It's it's a great positive outlook on life. <laughs> so how did we get here? Let's go into the background on Rodri and... Uh, <laughs> stop it. Stop it. Let's go to the background of Ronnie and Rodri. They were born on 24th of October, 1933. Oh my god, were they fellow Scorpius? I think they are. It's, it's fine, it's fine. Only the real Scorpius are born just about... <laughs> just around Halloween, you know, like me. Cool. They were born in Hagerston. They were born, I saw two sources, I saw more sources say Hoxton than Hagerston. Anyways, East London. And their parents, Violet and Charles, already had a six-year-old son who was also named Charles. And they uh, had a daughter as well who died in infancy. Her name was Violet. Their parents were from Irish and Jewish heritage. And when the twins were three years old, they had diphtheria, which is basically like a swelling of the neck. It's kind of like an infection, and it can subside, but I don't know why, but I couldn't find anywhere, because in my head, then, it kind of explains why Ronnie's might have not subsided completely, and he might have just been swollen or different or he might have just eaten more Maya as well <laughs> it's me like yeah let's just blame it on the disease the fact that I have a fucking double chin 
But yeah, I mean, their style was quite different. I just thought, I cannot take this too seriously. I know it was the 60s. I know the style was different. But I cannot take guys seriously when they have, like, their freaking pants up to, like, over their belly button. I'm like, what are you trying to do? It's like, oh, I'm supposed to be, like, scared of you? Like, why are you wearing your pants like you're gonna drop a freaking Instagram first trap? I have no respect for organized crime. <laughs> Someone's gonna get me one day again. 1930s and 40s, they have basically, as a family, tried to run to avoid military service. So their dad was in 39 on the run to avoid military service. And then, I mean, it makes sense. It's the Second World War. They don't want to serve in the military. Like, the fuck? They were mommy's boys. Like, the mom was like, no, you ain't going to war, man. You're kids. So during the Second World War, they're technically all evacuated to Suffolk. And both of them, when they spoke about this later, they said that, like, they actually enjoyed the peace and the quiet, which was kind of quite different from London, which again I find interesting thinking about, well, who they were after and how they couldn't deal with the peace and the quiet, where I was like, were you truly yourselves then, or were you truly yourselves now as criminals, as like living your best criminal life? But eventually they were actually called up for military service, and this is where the boxing that they have been training up so far, so to maturishly, but also they did have like some matches, especially Reggie, who was really good at it and was famous for a punch. I'll talk about this later. They were eventually called up to military service, but apparently just attempted to leave a few minutes into it, and Ronnie punched this corporal, this person, which made sure that they were arrested the very next morning, and turned over to this Tower of London prison, which was since then shut, and they were the last prisoners to be there. You know, just fun fact, there's so many listicles on them, as I told you. It was impossible to make it like an actual fucking plausible story. But I did it because I'm a hero. What is going on with the weather? <laughs> Why is everything bright suddenly? And eventually, as we know, they will be dishonorably discharged from the army. Because, again, they made sure of it. They would throw tantrums in prison. They would assault the officers. Pour the bucket on a sergeant. Just beat the shit out of them. So I feel like they kind of knew what they had to do in order not to serve in the army, in order not to go to the war. Which again, I think, just speaks about how calculated Reggie and Ronnie were from day one. And after, while well, getting out of the prison, they started this racketeering, they started their bodyguard business, and they had a couple of relationships. Ronnie dated females as well, even though his sexuality was also always debated. So he actually wrote, um, and this letter was auctioned, somebody actually freaking bought this letter. He wrote his mom from prison how he loved this girl Monica, how she's a lovely little person, as you know. When you see her, you tell her I'm in love with her more than ever. <laughs> love. Hello, Ronnie, so much. And even from Broadmoor, Ronnie actually married two women. He married Elaine Milner in 1985 and Kate Howard in uh, 1989. So even from a freaking mental health institution, people were still allowing this guy to be like, yeah, you, you do you, Ronnie. And Reggie, as we know, married Francis in 65. And then uh, in prison, he married Roberta Jones. And she was actually helping him publicize a film that was one of the first ones to be made about Craze. And that was made about Ronnie once he died in the hospital. So I love that that twin bond was, you know, prevalent, but not to, to the detriment, right? You see, this is how 
sort of normal twin relationships work, I guess, minus the crimes. This is truly when the family business appeared because Charlie was in on this and they were all extorting this landlord. He feared the continuous extortions from that craze. So he arranged a deal by which the twins would acquire a club known as the Esmeralda's Barn for the return of a bad check and the promise that they are not just continually going to try and extort him. And also what worked into their favor is that then the recently passed Betting and Gaming Act of 1960 allowed them to operate a legal gambling operation in the club, which means they used it as a cover for the rest of their illegal activities and to launder the money from all of these protection rackets they were operating. Growing up, both of them were sort of amateurish boxers of sorts as well. Well, there were pictures of them actually in the ring and stuff, so I think they were actually fighting as well. And also just to sort of wrap it all around, I think nobody ever mentioned this, but I think this is what Nippers Reed's strategy was in this whole case in general. And that was that he has had boxing background as well. So he knew how unpredictable that will make the brothers. So I feel like, you know, when he was in the game, when he was actually in the pub, just spying on these twins that he kind of was looking for probably those signs of like what actually makes them snap. That again is just my speculation. Basically, Reggie had this signature undercut kind of move. He would offer a cigarette to a person, right? Once they would let their guard down and think like he's gonna offer them the light, he would do like the undercut punch and yeah, just throw them throw them off. They would just drop their guard down and they wouldn't be prepared for it. Again, calculation. And as we know, the mix of this lifestyle, their inability to actually stay in a healthy relationship, is going to start to be their demise. And soon, we the first murder, Ronnie and Reggie, are gonna reach the point of no return. But now, what do we think motivated the brothers? I feel this is that thing, and it is relatable kind of today to a certain extent. I'm actually thinking about freaking influences when it comes to the lockdown, and I'm like, wow, this might be, this must be like such a difference in your lifestyle. And then also I think about uh, some of my friends that just act like, oh my god, this is unbearable. I'm like, wow, you had, you must have had such a thriving life before this. (laughs) I'm just antisocial. Cool, cool. But I feel these two accustomed themselves to a certain lifestyle and then they were like, well, ready to, to kill for it, ready to do anything to feed that image. Plus also then their personality traits and how they translated into that. So there was this criminologist that described them as narcissists. They came from nothing and managed to create an image for themselves in a way that nobody else had done. Uh, this was Dr. Ruth Penfold Mounts of York University. Most criminals become famous when they get caught and go to jail. They achieved it while they were still active. That's exactly that. They cared about their image. They cared about who they were, their fame. And they wanted it to stay the same. They wanted it to. Pro- they wanted to protect it at all costs. Where again, not to compare it to influencers, but you kind of get how feeble and just fluid this kind of thing is in general when you actually take and digest the whole story. I mean, and they met the miserable sad ending as well. But what they they couldn't have continued this. This wouldn't have lasted forever, their protection racket business as like a main job and their money laundering, because as we know, like there's always gonna be like another gang. 
another rival in town and they weren't the most mentally stable twins to to deal with it as well in the first place to just you know be stable and have their business forever and then pass it on as a family and all of that because nothing in their life was stable and i think the fact that they were twins played into the motive as well because of the era like i genuinely don't think these two would have been anybody, for example, today. Even if it was organized crime, it would have probably been on a lot smaller level. That's why I kind of gave you the idea of swinging 60s, because I think this is the general period when this would have been the thing, like, and they would have gotten away with a lot more and would have lived up to that image where people would applaud at the funerals and shit. Because right now they'd be like, you know, they'd be like, at best, your your freaking hoodlums. In, in the neighborhood that are renting the equipment to, you know, record some sick tune and shit. Do you ever think, like, of having a time machine and showing up, like, in your outfits today in a certain period of time in the past or in the future? And if so, which period would you like to show up and just freak everybody out? Like, yeah, this is what people dress up today. Deal with it. For me, it would be hoodies and they were like, <laughs> people would be like, wow, revolutionary. 2020 is the year to be living in. It's so not. But as I mentioned, they were the twin symbols of the idea that stretched back to this spirit of the Blitz when people of the East End were running their own lives, working together, keeping their own code without any interference from anybody and from officials in general. So that's the story of the twin brothers. Do you have any opinion on that? Do you think that we would still glorify twins like this today? Because we kind of do. When you see this movie, it's really... Uh, it just leaves you with such a weird taste. But I freaking laughed throughout like half of it. Because I was like, just what they say is just hilarious. Also, you kind of always associate these mafiosos with, like, I don't know, Italian mafia. It's, there's always, like, a lot of spirit. There's always, you know, a lot of energy, a lot of that to them. So you're kind of, you know, just learn to love them. And then, I mean, I love the criminals and voucher criminals in La Casa de Papel, so who am I to tell you not to do that? But yes, these twins did have soul. And they have inspired Voldemort. And, I mean, who you and I would be a lot different having not read Harry Potter in our childhood and not having had that world. So I thank you for that, great twins. Even though that's a totally not confirmed fact. Ah, this is a weird Monday, if you haven't noticed. It is weird, isn't it? I don't know where you are based at right now. I'm recording this on 2nd of November, but by the time this episode is released, um, you will... If you're in the UK, you're most probably going through the second lockdown. So just before going into your next Zoom call and just be listening to people drone on about it and how the government failed the nation, like how you don't know what you're going to do when the gyms have closed. That was my first opinion, you know, for a whole last month. Well, step back and reflect because this time you had gone through one lockdown. You have already gone through lockdown 1.0. So this time you have the actual experience of what worked, what didn't work then. And you go into that Zoom call, you go in there prepared. They're like, oh my god, how do I do? What did you do during the first lockdown? How did you deal with this? What worked? What didn't change? What 
didn't, bitch. Change it. Twist it around and turn it around. Now, most of the businesses have a customer sales as well. You don't hear freaking Deliveroo being like, oh my god, how are we gonna deal with this? No, they're like, yo, listen, these are the places where you can get food, you can get takeaways. Again, you don't hear the yoga studios, workout studios, just being like, oh my god, how do we do it? No, they're ready. They have classes online. They are prepared and that's what you need to be. Mm -hmm. That's me telling myself that before freaking out. (laughs) What you don't need to be... Side note. Side note on like actual side note to the episode. Genius. Genius. Minds. Minds. (laughs) Great minds think alike. What you don't need to be is like me throughout the majority of my schooling. And exactly, I was laughing so hard yesterday because I was like, okay, no, this is my time (laughs) to have a man from an experiment of upper body workout to actually look like fucking Hulk when you see me next time. Yeah, no flappers, no, nothing flapping. (laughs) And I was just like, okay, mine. So, you need actual like... (laughs) plan to do this actual like aspirations actual challenge of like what you do day to day otherwise you're gonna have your uh, primary school high school whatever you want to call it moment of every summer i'll be the person <laughs> like listen next time you see me. again i wouldn't say this to the people because then they would i would actually need to own up to it which wasn't really my, my thing because i never planned to do it in the first place every june i'll be like listen when i come back to the school in september and be new me they're gonna be like oh my god who is this girl <laughs> i watch a lot of gossip girl related shows or just telenovelas and stuff i was like glow up listen everybody had a glow up <laughs> It's like, yo, when I go in, they're gonna be like, whoa, look at her, she has changed so much, she has a different style, (laughs) different hair, actually looks decent, you know, she's super hot, wow, did she even start wearing eyeliner? Yeah, and then, if anything, every September I would get to that school a bit uglier than I left in June, because, you know, during the summer I would just be, like, chilling at home. Just doing nothing in general, not really even getting like the sunshine, the vitamin D. My eyebrows would all go back to monobrow and they'd be like, oh yeah, I need to shave that sauce. <laughs> hey, I appeared. So, yeah, don't do that. Most definitely, I see you. After 2nd of December, we see each other and you are looking better and <laughs> stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. You're having that Hulk biceps. <laughs> And you're going to the Zoom call being like, I told you so, motherfuckers, I told you I had a plan. I was prepared, like, the losers. Yeah, or don't do that and don't lose your job. I mean, it just depends how much you actually care about your job. Mm. Yeah, my it truly does. But now I'm going to let you move the fuck on with your Monday, because this story had shit on the sidelines anyways. Yeah, you share the fact about Voldemort with your co-workers. That, that should be the sideline. And the most important thing should be... You making this world truly a better place, one motive at a time. <laughs> Bye, fuckers.